Sounds good. So, first of all, I can introduce yourself for the audience. Sure. My, my, my name is Ola, um, and I am, uh, I do a lot of different things. My, my initial training, I, I'm a physio, physical therapist, uh, lived 10 years in the U.S. And, and got my training there from the University of Connecticut. Then I moved back over to Norway and uh, currently work at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences, uh, Associate Professor Biomechanics, Motor Control, Exercise Science, and then uh, consult with the Norwegian Olympic Paralympic Committee. Uh, and I'm one of the founders of 1080 Motion uh, 10 years ago, and uh, also Athletic 1080, which is another another. Uh, holistic approach to, to testing, training, and movement. So uh, that's me. I'm uh, very much into the uh, implied perspective of, of, of movement. Uh, so a lot of the research that I do is geared and, and, and targeted towards the applied domain to be relevant to coaches and practitioners in the field, basically. So trying to be relevant to coaches. And healthcare professionals. Oh, I like it. So, um, the first thing I want to ask is about like, I know there's like coaches now you use like 1080 to do resistance sprint, to do assisted sprint. And I know also some of the coaches going to use it to train deceleration. So, um, I want to start with deceleration. When you coach deceleration, is there like certain like uh key things you're gonna look into, like how their foot lands, how like the body center mass moves? Yeah, I think you know that that's that's a very big question for sure. Um, uh, we're actually uh, we're trying to actually put this. Some of our thought processes together. Uh, Damien Harper is the first author of this this paper, and it's in revision right now. But we've tried to create kind of a framework uh, for how you can start to think about these things, uh, because there, you know, there there are a number of different things that you have to consider. Uh, one, you're alluding to it already, is the uh, you know the foot placement and and, and those things. And that, that goes into, let's call a, a, a technical bucket where you actually are, are giving cues into the technical execution. And then another thing would be uh, some of the physical capacities or, or factors associated with being able to decelerate. And if we, if we start with the physical or yeah, bodily uh, capacity, so to speak, uh, I always start with dynamic postural control and, and landing control. So it's um, it's basically very simple types of exercises. I usually I actually do integrate the star excursion balance test just to look at dynamic postural control unilaterally. So that's a very very basic thing. But but how is that looking? Then I usually go on to landing control. So if I can do a single leg landing, 
Uh, I don't impose any loads at that point. I just allow them to do it. And then I give some cues as to, okay, what are the movement strategies that you have? Sometimes you see people uh, maybe excessively flex at their hip and get, you know, more of a forward trunk lean. So, you know, trying to prepare them for what's coming by having being a little bit more upright. And uh, my perspective from talking about this right now, it, it's it's geared towards multi-directional sports. So this is from a, whether you play basketball or football or, or soccer, some people call it soccer, I call it football, um, or uh, any other multi-directional sport. Uh, I think it's important that you get your head up and, and know what's going on around you. So that's like a key component there in terms of the trunk. And then uh, from that, uh, I might actually then introduce loading. Uh, so I'm doing like an assisted uh, assisted jump, uh, very small. I control the distance because if, and that's where I use motorized resistance. Um, but here, you if you are not smart about it and you allow the people to use assisted with high retraction speeds and high loads, they will fly through the air. And then they have to deal with the landing, which could be difficult. So then I usually give them a shorter target, like a meter, meter and a half, just, okay, can you deal, deal with this? You know, go by their successes there. So that, that would be another one. And then another thing that I also like to introduce is the people have a tendency to think this is all forward. Uh, I think we have to consider the fact that this is a multi-directional, meaning that, yes, you can go sagittal. Yes, you can go forward. But then I have my little angles that I think about. All right, I have to be able to do this at the 45. I have to be able to do this at the 90 and, and, and there, thereby, you know, multi-directional when I'm doing those jumps to control or, or assisted jumps, if you will. So that would be, that's, and this is where, you know, a, a jump to land test is, is a classical uh, dynamic posture control test, but nevertheless also very much linked to power and, you know, my ability to attenuate forces. Uh, so that would be one thing that I do. And then I start with assisted uh, lunge walks, crouch walks, uh, can they? And then it's more of a force uh, force component, for sure. Um, then I progress that into faster ones, more load, faster jumps, faster acceptance. Then I go into... Uh, uh, sprints to stops, starting with shorter approach distances to longer approach distances. Um, and again, I use uh, motorized resistance tech because it allows me to actually look at what's going on. What are the step characteristics? I get values. I get numbers on, on how they're doing it. Uh, how much I can weigh to the athlete is somewhat limited, but I like to have that in my back pocket and look at it if there are certain things that I see that I hmm, maybe I should backtrack or maybe this is so good I, I should pro progress a little faster uh, and when I do increasing approach distances I never increase approach distances 
and assisted loading uh, at the same time. Uh, I go by one. Uh, what's the right choice here? I don't know. But I think uh, don't mix the bag, mix it up too much. Just do uh, one at a time so you know what you're manipulating. I, I think that's that's important. Then I go into, uh, then I go back down on the approach distance and then I go into a change of direction. And that could be 180, that could be a 90, that could be a 45, that could be different ones. And again, I always use assisted starts because I'm very, and when I say assisted start, I mean you start by running towards the motorized resistance device. Meaning that if I'm pulling you with an external force, that's going to impose a greater demand on your deceleration. That's why I always start with an assisted start. Because after all, we're talking about deceleration here, so that's how I would target it. Um, and then we've done some studies and explored this, and, and, and we know that it seems like braking forces and the uh, braking power um, are greater when I set myself up for a change of direction rather than coming to a stop. That's why I have that progression. And then the next step would be to integrate this into small-sided games and, and, and making the people aware of, you know, this is what we're targeting, uh, small-sided games, smaller areas, bigger areas, smaller areas, shorter, less approach speed, uh, lower forces, a little bit bigger area, you will impose, you know, greater demands there. And then obviously, like you alluded to, the technique, you know, how do I position myself? You know, if I'm going to slow down, I need to generate horizontal force, period. You know, that's just Newtonian physics. So there's, it's undeniable, which means that if I'm going to generate the horizontal force, you know, putting my foot out forward in front of me, that's, that's a good strategy because that allows me to generate that. Um, so that's one thing. And lower your center of mass so you just, just don't come in too upright. Those would be like very simple cues that I do. So I think, uh, yeah, and then foot positioning coming out of the turn, um, the reacceleration step, setting myself up for the reacceleration. Uh, sometimes I see people getting too greedy and not being able to get their the first step under the hip, they're kind of overreaching that first step and not being able to, you know, explode out of the gate. Um, so, yeah, I think those are like some some big rocks that I touched upon. Cool. So there was a lot of information. I I understand that was a lot of information in a short period of time then, but. This is this is how it started very simple and just just to progress it and advance it. Well, so um, from deceleration to reacceleration, or from like deceleration to like change of direction, um, mm -hmm. is the eccentric force going to be? Is the essential for like larger from change of change of direction? Yeah. So if you're looking at, uh, if if you're looking at, um, 
the forces um, that are associated with uh, horizontal braking or decel as compared to reacceleration, we see that uh, A, number one, the forces are greater in magnitude in the deceleration as compared to reacceleration. We have to be cognizant of that. Uh, number two, uh, the rate of force development is also very high or higher. So we have to be cognizant of that when we introduce this into a training regime for sure. Uh, so we don't overdo it. And then looking at that, at you know, what other training do they actually do? How can we implement this into their uh, their different cycles? Because if they're in season, uh, that could be a difficult task. In the off season, that's probably where you can do the most. Uh, so we're looking actually to do a couple of studies when it comes to that. What can we do off season? And how can we make changes off season? Uh, and prepare them for it. So from a forest perspective, yes, uh, it, it, it is greater. And that also feeds our basic physiology because we know that, you know, from looking at simple simple joints or, 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 or muscles, and, you know, we know that our eccentric force demand or capacities are greater than concentric capacities. And, and this is also seen at a more of a macroscopic level in a locomotive pattern, such as a change of direction, where you do see similar behavior. You have the eccentric side of things. So you almost put it into a hill curve where you see on the deceleration side, greater forces, greater RFDs, whereas on the acceleration side, smaller, relatively, it's important. They're not small forces on the acceleration side, but it's relatively, they're smaller. So, um... Do you think that like nowadays there are more and more coaches discussing about like uh, deceleration is because probably deceleration is uh, the limiting factor of like teams for athletes? Uh, is it a limiting factor? I, I think this is also some of the stuff that we are doing with the, you know, motorized uh, technology and 1080 motion. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we, you know, when we started to explore these tests for change of direction, one of the things that we really wanted to do was to actually provide continuous data. So, because we've always observed that, you know, some athletes might favor or go in a little slower to showcase their higher acceleration capacity, meaning they're almost camouflaging their deceleration. Uh, with continuous data during the different phases, we can we can look into this and we can start to identify this and we can start to see this. And I think that will allow us to have, be more targeted in our prescriptions. So that was one of the reasons why we actually did it. And then in our most recent publication, we wanted to look at the reliability and it's it's a lot of data in there. But the point of that project is basically all right, so if you're looking at these outcome measurements from a COD test, here is the reliability, uh, here's the minimum detectable change. So we know if you're making, uh, if you do a pre-post kind of thing, we know that if we observe these kind of differences, we know that we made a difference. 
And this is also where we can really start and look, are there different benchmarks that we could start to establish? And this is pretty new. So uh, I think benchmarks would be good. Reference data would be brilliant um, because then we know, is this a good way of doing it? This is, could it be better? Uh, you know, are there things that we could improve upon? And then we'll, I think we'll, you'll find that, yes, yeah, certain players on a team might benefit from it, whereas others are pretty solid. So maybe focus elsewhere. Um, but I think that is that is to be determined, uh, I, I think. But is it an important factor? Absolutely. And if we start to look at injuries and injury preventions and all those things, we know that you know deceleration is the where it happens. Unfortunately, uh, being more cognizant and aware, and maybe you know put that into our injury prevention programs or, or training programs. Uh, who knows? Maybe that could have a positive impact. But then we need would need empirical data to actually make that inference and say, well, yes, it is injury preventive. But I think based upon observations, it has a possibility or an opportunity to be so, uh, whether or not it is by itself uh, remains to, to, to be seen for sure. And again, you know, injuries are so multifactorial. Uh, it's uh, not very likely that one singular factor is, is going to predict. So it could be one factor of, of men. Yeah, but having this awareness and having these data and, and being able to look at it and explore it to me it makes a lot of sense. So, um, for teaching uh, movement, we you we oftentimes like categorize like linear acceleration or like multi multi directional movement, change of direction, and we separate like linear is one day and like multi is the other day do you think we should uh deceleration on a certain day or put it into that same day like linear direction and multi-direction well that's a good question uh, i think it depends on where you are in the season uh, because I would be very wary of introducing a lot of multi-directional decelerations in season. I would be very careful in doing that. Uh, let let's let's say that we have a you know a big roster. Um, I think that could be a good thing maybe to introduce to those players who didn't play that much. Uh, their bench players, um, those kind of players that didn't get the exposure then having that understanding and giving them that exposure, I think could be a golden opportunity. Um, for those who are playing a lot and frequently, uh, then it's just probably better to get them back on their feet and not impose more damage, so to speak. So that could be one thing. Uh, if I am in a multi-directional sport, uh, should we mix it up? Um, uh, let's use the example of basketball. Um, 
If you're in basketball, uh, I would probably mix it up a little bit because the thing is that, and again, I would probably have, I would probably test acceleration, linear acceleration, uh, from different starting positions for for diff or, and by starting positions, I mean, we usually test linear acceleration from a preferred pattern or or stance position. Usually, two points start with the preferred foot forward. Most people choose left foot forward, so it's a left stride pattern. Why not try a right stride pattern? Because you have to accelerate out of that as well. Uh, how about just neutral stance? So you have to go into a split step and then accelerate. How about rotated left, rotated right? So you actually have like different starting positions to actually then work on explosion or, or linear acceleration. And then I, an acceleration by itself is good, but um, that leads to something else, you know? It, it's some sort of transition into something. That's the reality of it. Um, so including that into it would be good. And then another thing that I, I think also people disregard sometimes, how do we actually put in different locomotive patterns? Uh, because we do running, but if I'm in basketball, why don't we go to side shuffle cross steps and, and do these other locomotive patterns too in conjunction with that. So we, I'm accelerating using this locomotive pattern and then I have a transition into this other locomotive pattern. It could be forward to backward. It could be backward to forward. Uh, and again, looking at the sport and what they can do on the court and versus where they might be struggling with different movements, I think it'd be very, very interesting. Um, so I think that is how I would think about it. It really all depends on your sport and it's multi-directional transitions. That's the name of the game. Say for instance, if I had a tennis player, I would probably think a little different because then I have a lot of baseline transitions, whereas I don't go as much forward and backwards. So then I might, you know, put it together a little bit differently based upon the nature of the game. Uh, so that would be different than basketball or football for that matter. So, uh, yeah, I would probably mix it up, but not do too much because when we've done these deceleration things and especially with, with external loading, you have to be careful how much you introduce. Uh, yeah. To have a slow progression and think about the total volume because we know that acute increases in workload and if we impose a external demand we have to we have to be cognizant of that yeah so um i know like some coaches are going to utilize 1080 to uh train deceleration and mm -hmm. i also know like uh Coaches use 1080 to do assisted sprinting. So yeah. when we use like uh, 1080 to maybe coach over speed training or assisted sprinting, how can we make sure they're not actually decelerating? Uh -huh. That's a really good question. Um, I think there are... There's some cool things, and then we don't know too much about assisted sprinting. If you're looking at it, and that's from a literature perspective, 
that's from the science, the body of knowledge, you know, in published work, that there's a lot of experience out there in the world on this topic, uh, for sure. But I think, um, uh, but I think uh, the assisted sprint thing, um, I think there was a, there was a, a a small little study done by Coach Potts that is published on uh, that is published on uh, on Simply Faster, where he actually did assisted sprinting, and what he did find was a uh, improvement in that zero to five, zero to ten uh, time interval, which is kind of this is the most force demanding part of the sprint. But nevertheless, assisted sprinting, where you get assistance and help, actually was beneficial. Was uh, was 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 very positive for this, which is maybe it's kind of like a neuromuscular uh, coordinated thing. I'm able to get my feet into position faster, and thereby allowing me to have a better acceleration. So that was that was very interesting. Uh, and another one, a lot of um you might also think about it a little different where you say all right if i'm having assisted sprinting i'm I'm being pulled i'm using less energy to get into speed i i can stay at the higher speed for a longer period of time and expose myself to that um that is also a very nice approach to assisted sprinting then to your question uh how do i know that they're not slamming on the brakes and this is where we're actually looking at the frequencies of the locomotive pattern. And I think Chris Corfitz, uh, an excellent track and field coach from Chicago, has done a lot of cool things with wickets and ensuring that you have your, your frequency maintained so you don't end up floating. And another thing that you can do with the in-assisted sprinting too is looking at the you know, at a, a split time or a split interval, uh, you're getting into your speed. Um, and then the question becomes, is it truly overspeed or not? Because it could be like you're saying, they're, they're, they're breaking. Uh, well, you can look at then is, or, or at least how we've approached it and many coaches do, is that you impose a pulling force and then you look at the 10 meter split if that 10 meter split keeps on going down, they're actually able to run faster and faster and faster. And then it reaches a point where if you have too much pulling force, the uh, the the the, um, the best 10 meter split time might go up, which means that they're not really doing, they're actually slowing down or, or braking. So that could be a, a proxy measure of them not actually being able to utilize it or take advantage of it. So um, split times could be helpful in that regards. And can we use 1080 to watch to get split times or do we yeah. have to use like having gig? No, you can get split. You can get the splits that you want and you can set the split distances. Uh, and we use the empirical system or the metric system because you could use your yardage and say if you're in American football, you want to use yards because that's that's how you do it. Whereas more of a classic track and field coach would be more like five-meter splits or 10-meter splits. 
and then if you have continuous velocity measurements, you can obviously get the different splits and, and, and monitor those. And that's that's usually what I do. Yeah. So um go back to like deceleration. Um and I know I probably answered this at the beginning. Um but for those like like football or like rugby player, they have like like American football, they have like crazy acceleration and crazy amount of like deceleration or change or change of direction during the game. Uh, are you gonna like um when training if it's like off season? Are you gonna like increase or how are you gonna increase the deceleration load? No, I would say that's also dependent upon positioning, right? Like, okay, which position would would require you to be able to be good at deceleration versus, well, having, you know, some level of being able to slow things down is obviously important. But then there are different positions that will have greater, you know, demands for it or need for it because it's a part of you know you slam on the brake or you stop on a dime you know people sometimes say that could be very helpful to create space uh and and you know if we, <clears throat> this is evident to like in goal scoring opportunities you know deceleration capacities is important to you know outmaneuver your opponent it's like you're stopping on a diamond, boom, you're exploding away. So having having that capacity is 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 is, is very important. Uh, how would you progress that loading? And I think, yeah, I, I touched on it a little bit uh, going in. I think there are like two things that you manipulate. Well, three things that I would start with. Number one is approach speed and giving a deceleration distance and monitor their max speed. Because if you know you see their max speed dropping, that's gonna decrease your deceleration demand now, isn't it? So if you set a distance of say 10 meters or 15 meters and what have you, making sure that they reach a certain target of their approach speed and then slam on the brakes, uh, you could try to set up uh, and change the deceleration zone uh, by using external cues such as cones. Uh, you give them the instruction. I want you to do this. I want you to complete it from here to here as fast as possible. So they have to solve the task. And then you look at the speed and what it was. Then the, the other one, uh, if you're going to go into a transition, you have to think about if you're going into transitions, uh, lower angles, uh, it's more of like a speed dominant change of direction, obviously associated with less force. So that's more of a speed perspective. Uh, anything from 90, de 90 degrees and upwards, then it's more of a force dominant change of direction, which means that more force is gonna be uh, associated with it. So the angle of the turn is important. Then, so I angle of the turn, the approach distance, how much speed am I assuming? It's basically a drop jump. 
the approach distance is the same as the height in a drop jump because it's I'm giving you more speed to deal with or you choose to assume speed to deal with. In a drop jump, it's like you get up on something and you're like, okay, no, I, I can't land this. So I take a step down, then I can land. So it, it's it's basically the height of the box or whatever that you're jumping off of. That's your approach distance. And then the pulling force, you know, is also another variable that you upregulate. That's almost like a drop jump with an additional load, right? So you don't go up on the highest point with a lot of additional load, and then you do a drop jump. That's not your progression. Um, so then, then you do a gradual increase uh, the way that we've done it, uh, because it's very difficult to get an RM out of this. Like so, you can set a certain percentage. So we have uh, started started to standardize this based upon percentages of body weight. Because you have some heavier people that, you know, it's their mass that they have to stop plus something, you know, normalized to their mass. So I, I would say that would be some of the progressions from a physical perspective. Nice. I like it. I like it. So, um, and, and one, one thing there too, like, don't complicate it too much, you know, not, don't get too fancy, you know, it's like, it it's I'm manipulating this variable. I'm doing this this number of reps and this number of sets. You know, I'm going to go fast. I'm going to go slow. You know, it's don't don't yeah. So I would say those three variables: angle, approach distance, external load. I got you. So uh, one thing I noticed about the uh, 1080s got you can get all kinds of data from 1080 sure and it's basically kind of like a moving force plate yeah it's not a bad comparison yeah it's like so, a yeah so what are the thought process of like designing or like putting all this together uh putting the system the yeah together yeah no that that's that's that goes back to uh, one of the reasons why I'm involved here, basically. It's that we wanted to, um, because we obviously have different systems. We have the, the 1080 quantum, the cable, and then and the sprint and dimensions on there. Uh, the thing is that we wanted freedom to operate and freedom to move, right? Because if you look historically, like a lot of force measurements was, you know, under isokinetic dynamometers and unit planar unit, you know, one joint, one plane, one direction. So we wanted the freedom to move and do that in different kind of movements uh, to free up the system, so to speak. We can do isolated joint, sure. We can do partial kinetic kinematic chain. We can do full kinematic chain, and then we can do locomotive patterns. So, and that's the name 1080 because it's 360 degrees, three planes of motion. So it, it's basically the freedom to move. That's what it stands for. So 1080 motion, freedom to operate while I load you up in, 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 in that. So that was the reasoning or, or one of the reasoning. And then, you know, we obviously have different types of 
resistance or, or different ways that we can obtain information from people. We could do uh, just traditional loading, we impose a certain load to you, and then we manipulate how the load behaves, meaning that it could behave like a mass in a gravitational field. It could be isotonic or towards isotonic, or it could be quote unquote nor yeah, normal, uh, which is the mass in a gravitational field. And then we have something that we call no flying weight, uh, which is a type of resistance setting that the weight doesn't fly away from you. Because if you've been jumping with, with for instance, a bar and weight on it, you, it kind of like flies away and then you have this little impact when you land with it. So we wanted the load to stay with you so you didn't get that slack in the line, so to speak. So that's what we call no flying weight. And then we can do eccentric overload. So we can set the contrast it. And that's also a very variable type of resistance. Uh, in change of direction, because I use that actually quite a bit there, um, in that I give you more eccentrically or assisted. So when you're running towards the machine, you have to deal with more than when you turn around and run away from the machine. So you get an eccentric overload. That could be done in a squat, that could be done in a change of direction. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's the same kind of thought process. This to target the fact that you do generate more force uh, and are stronger eccentrically than concentrically. Then you have super maximal eccentrics. Obviously, that is not related to uh, change of direction, but say you do a Bulgarian split or a squat or something, we impose a external load that you cannot reverse, meaning that you cannot turn it into concentric, uh, a concentric action because the external load is too too big. This is where you have to be careful and you have to be instruct your athletes or, or the people that you work with very carefully that you, you're going to fight it. Uh, and we're going to calibrate the system within the physiological range. We have all these safety measures when we do that. And then we give them a target force to try to reach. And it's not necessarily, you know, everything you got every single time, every single session, because that becomes, you know, extremely demanding. And then another thing that we manipulate is uh, speed. Because if you think of force velocity, it's force. So we manipulate load, manipulate the behavior of that load, and then we manipulate the speed. So that's when we can go and put on the handbrake of any kind of movement, really. And that's when you're getting into isokinetics, uh, which could be really good for rehab purposes or, or, or just pure straight up strengthening ex uh, a strength program. And then we get all sorts of data, like you alluded to. Uh, this is where you uh, you can be, you start out pretty, I would say like, you know, from a discrete movement, like a squat or a Bulgarian, okay, peak average force, power, speed, uh, those kind of things. And then you can get into, you know, uh, different things, more fancy things as you, as you, as you move along. Um, because it gives you the opportunity to do so. For for instance, for a change of direction, I usually start with the total time, split it, phases, uh, the initial acceleration to deceleration time versus the reacceleration time. You look at those ratios, then you split split it further into subphases, and then you look at the times. 
And times are also very easy to communicate when you're doing locomotive patterns because that's a very common way of communicating it, right? Because it's people know and understand a zero to five time. If I start to get into forces and accelerations and all these other things, people might get a little confused and not understand what it means. So it's communication here is also very important, especially in communicating with other coaches and athletes. Because you don't want to overwhelm them, overwhelm them, and you want to give them meaningful things, right? That is key. And uh, reporting that, and, and so you get a buy-in, so they understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. This is what happened. This is how we can change it. And then, once you educate your athletes and you work more with them, you can start to expose them to more data. And it's like, okay, look at the slope here. All right, I want you to actually. See if you can be a little bit more abrupt here. Sometimes on deceleration, I do that. I show them the curve. I give them that information and what it means. And then they go out and they try to change it. I know certain uh, tennis organizations do it that way and uh, with great results. So, But that is dependent upon the knowledge and the maturity of the athletes that you're working with. I like, I like your approach. So um kind of want to go back to like deceleration a bit and ask about like there there's one time I tried to like uh I saw an athlete move and he kind of moved his movement efficiency isn't that good and I introduced a little like a uh, linear deceleration and somehow it's a basketball player so somehow the player just moves so efficient so my question is do you think that um, linear deceleration is going to transfer or is have a good transfer to like multi-directional i mean if we only change linear deceleration and by linear you're thinking going straight forward yeah um Yes and no. There are going to be similarities and there are going to be differences. Uh, I've tested and I've worked with different athletes and sometimes you'll be surprised what you find when... Uh, and one, one approach that we did to this was that we looked at, you know, going sideways and going forward and stopping and and all of a sudden, you might have one leg in one direction that is not really doing all that great. Uh, and we looked at, we, we tested the whole football team, pro football team, and we looked at vertical versus forward versus lateral. And the correlations were not that great, which means to that is telling me that there is some sort of specificity to the directionality of being able to express force just because you're good forward does not necessarily mean that you're good sideways and if i'm going to be working with a say or have a basketball team if i'm going to be working with one basketball team i would like to know are they good sideways forwards backwards because you might and, and these are things that you might see on the court because if I know that if I'm going to explode off my left going to my right, I'm not as good going to my right as to my left. You you might see them favoring that positioning. Now I'm thinking defensively. 
um, that might be favoring that positioning, and you might see it on the court. And if you're able to piece this together and then talk to the head coach, and the head coach is like, whoa, this, this strength coach is, or performance coach is, is seeing that in what he's doing over here. That's really cool. I'm going to listen now because that's, to me, is very important information because this is what some of the shortcomings I'm seeing from this particular athlete on the court. So I would say yes and no. And, and and sometimes you'd be surprised because we've done vertically, kind of movement jump is a vertical change of direction. We've done that with the expectation that that is also going to explain all these other ones. Not necessarily the case. Are there going to be similarities? Yes, absolutely. Because if if I'm if I'm poor vertically, I'm probably also going to be pretty pretty poor sideways. But vertically, I've been exposed to maybe a little bit more, and then laterally, maybe I haven't integrated that enough into my resource training in terms of you know different physical qualities. So. This is also a little bit of speculation on my end, but I'd like to at least explore it to see what it is, you know, before I jump to any conclusions there. So basically... But there is, there is certainly some transfer, yeah. So basically what we can get from 1080 is like uh, 360, then 360 degrees of like data, like force plate, we only can get vertical, but in 10A, we can get like all kinds of data from different direction. That's so nice. Yeah. It, 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 and then again, it, it's like, it, it's a tool uh, and a good tool put in the, the right hands can be very, very potent and very, very powerful. Um, but you just have to know how to, how to set it up, how to program it, how to put it into your testing protocol uh putting into your training protocols and the cool thing about this the 1080 sprint 2 that we have now is that it, it's very mobile uh i have it here in my office and uh, i bring it out into the gym so i i put it up i do you know a little bit of you know isokinetic bulgarian splits on it and then i go into deceleration steps and then i i you know do some hip rehab and then I can do a lot of things with um, with one little piece of kit, but again, that's based upon the knowledge and uh, of the user. Um, so that's if if he or she can 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 put it into play, it can be very powerful. Yes. Nice. That's basically all the questions I have for today. So for all those who are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? They can find me. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not like a big social media guy, uh, on and off social media guy kind of. Uh, but LinkedIn, you can find my profile on LinkedIn. I, I actually like LinkedIn because you can have longer posts and people can read a little bit more. Uh, so that that would be my name on LinkedIn, obviously. Uh, uh, on on I'm on Twitter. Uh. I don't even remember remember my my Twitter tag, which is pretty 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 terrible. But uh, uh, it's it's my full name on uh, Instagram. But on uh, on on Twitter, 
at Ola Athletic 1080. That's my uh, that's my that's my Twitter uh, tag. Uh, yeah, and then obviously I'm I'm listed with my email at um, the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences, so it's my full name, or you could use Ola E at NIH, which is Norwegian. Uh, yeah, it's the Norwegian abbreviation, so I'm not gonna get into that. But NIH dot no, so that's in normal. Cool. Uh, 